we exist to come alongside people who are hurting, who are broken, who are messed up, to come alongside them and give them love and to give them grace and to give them encouragement until they can rise above it and walk on that path on their own. We are Pathway Church, located in Burleson, Texas. We worship together, we serve together, and we grow together. Yeah, I want to say happy Father's Day to everybody that in the house, everybody that is online, everybody's uh, back, at, back at home. Uh, and hey, I, I just, I, this, this is kind of a special occasion today. Uh, my dad is actually in the house here this morning on Father's Day. And I want to say hello to my dad right here. Yeah, happy Father's Day, Dad. Yeah, they've, they've not been to church since COVID. And uh, this is their first time back, and uh, it's, it's kind of cool to walk in the building and get to give my dad a hug. So good. I love you, Dad. Thank, thank you for, for being who you are. And I want to remind all the dads here in the house and father figures and like that, man, stop out in the crossing, uh, get a photo station. You can get hopefully online. We encourage you to do that well. And whether you're online or in the house or True Worth or anywhere, uh, you can draw. Dads, we've got a place for you to put your name in the hat. And you never can tell. You draw it out. You can't win unless you put your name in. And later on this evening, we're going to have some drawings and some great prizes. And let's start off uh, here in prayer here. God, we, we give you thanks uh, for this thing called fathers. Uh, we thank you, first of all, God, that you are a good, good father. You are perfect in every way. You are holy. Your love is unconditional. We can trust you. You always look out for our good. You always show up. You never forget. You never blow it. You know everything. You are our good, good Father. And on this Father's Day, God, we thank you for the idea of fathers. Some of us find our hearts full with gratitude. Some of us have a hole in our heart and in our soul for various reasons. Some of us, God, are just so filled with joy and excitement, some are still working through issues with their own dad. A father who has gone to live with you and maybe even a father who's still on this earth and today brings some angst and some anxiety. But God, even though we, we, we pause to celebrate Father's Day in our families, in our households, ultimately, every day is Father's Day because every day is your day because you really ultimately are our good, good Father and we worship you and worship you only. And we thank you for sending your son Jesus to stand in the gap for us, to have our back and to model what it is to be like you. And ultimately, God, all, all the dads in the house that are here today, all the men in the house, God, we declare we want to be like Jesus, your son. So as we open your word, teach us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to kind of get situated in your notes, and we'll dive in here in a second. I do kind of have a personal note to share with you. Uh, last summer, I did not take my kind of annual midsummer break. And when it got to the time of the fall, uh, my family uh, and many of the staff here on church said, 
uh, Rick, you did not take your summer break this year. We can tell. And so I'm about to do that here. I'm, you're going to see me around. I'm going to be around doing my thing in different ways, and I'll be engaging with staff, getting ready for the fall, all the great things that we have coming up, moving to the new building, uh, as well as the 50th celebration of Pathway Church. But I'm going to kind of be changing what I do over the next few weeks, really spending a lot of time in self-examination on where we are, where God is leading us, uh, where I need to be growing, where we as a church need to be growing. And I'm just going to ask you to be praying for that process. It's something I do just about every year. I didn't get to do it last year, but this year I am. And so I would just a- ask for that as, we, as I kind of enter in this time of reflection and renewal. We, uh, I want to end and be- I want to begin and end this message with the same prayer. And we're going to put it up on the screen here. And this prayer is one of the oldest prayers in the church, and it goes all the way back to Jesus. And though this is just the prayer, will you please say this with me? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would you please, now, now that you kind of heard it, I want you to slow it down. Say it again with just a little bit more mean, okay? Just say it again. Let's do it again. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, now the sting of this prayer, the last three words, me, a sinner. And that is me. And that is you. It is not just that I have not actualized my growth potential. It's not just that from time to time I make errors in judgment. It's that I am a wrongdoer. I'm a damage causer. I'm a moral fraud. Very humbling, humbling prayer. Could you put it on the screen again? I want you to say it with me again. Look at it again. Very humbling prayer. Say it with me again. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Totally counterculture to our therapeutic little world in which we live, where it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry about it. We've been in a series here for the past three weeks on looking at things that people think the Bible says, but the Bible really doesn't say. And the more I've thought about the things that the Bible doesn't say, the more it's made me think about really who God is and helped me grow in my understanding of who God is not, but really who God is. And our phrase this morning is a phrase that many of us have used before, we have said before uh, in many different ways, but I think the phrase is a little bit misleading, and it's really kind of not true. And it makes some things to think about God that are not true and how we treat other people, not how God wants us to treat people. And the phrase is this, is that you, you love the sinner, but you hate the sin. Now, it sounds really biblical, right? It sounds kind of biblical because sin is a bad thing. And we're supposed to love everybody. But it's not in the Bible. And Jesus didn't say it. So we're going to kind of break this up into two parts. We're going to, it's almost like two mini messages. We're going to deal with the part of, of hate the sin first and, and love the sinner on the other end. So you'll, if you have notes, you want to take notes, you can do it on your phone or on paper, however you want to do that. But we're just going to kind of dive in here and look at both these things, the, these essence and phrases in two different ways. Now, the, the biblical writers have a whole lot to say about sin. I mean, a whole lot. And uh, I, I would just ask you maybe a couple of questions here, what you think, according to the writers of Scripture, uh, how widespread is sin? How widespread is it? Well, the Bible's very clear. It says in, in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Another question, uh, how, how damaging, 
How, how widespread is the damage of this thing called sin? Well, it's pretty, pretty, pretty damaging. It says, verse 23 of chapter 6, for the wages of sin, the, out, the outcome, the impact of sin is death. How seriously does the Bible say that you and I, you and I are to struggle against this sinful part of our lives? Over in James 4, verse 8, it goes like this. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. When you and I enter into the world of the Bible, we enter into a world where there is a weight, a very heavy weight about the status of the human condition. And because the biblical writers believed that sin is so baffling and cunning and so terribly destructive to each individual and to the world as a whole, the biblical writers use a lot of words and phrases in the Bible to describe sin to make sure that we get it. So I'm going to make an effort here. I've written down 11 different 11 different words and phrases that are used to describe sin in the Bible. And I'm just going to quick hit them. If you want to jot them down, write them down, you can do so. You don't have to, but this is number one in our message notes. And the first one I would use, I would say, is the Bible talks about wandering off the path. Like you take a wrong turn. You take a wrong turn and you wind up over here and you go, hey, how did I end up here? I wandered off the path. Here's another one, missing the mark. This is a very common Greek word in the New Testament. Missing the mark. It's like an archer who's aiming at a target and they miss the target and the arrow goes where they do not want it to go. Hey, listen, if you're, if you're with an archer who has a bad aim, you do not want to stand next to the target. It can, a missed arrow can do damage. When you and I miss the mark, when you and I say, do, and become who we did not aim to be, it does damage to the people around us. Here's another one, broken. The Bible uses the word broken. Like a broken chair or a broken computer and no longer has any use, so you throw it away. You just discard it. Not too long ago, there was a series on television, I know that many of you watched, called Breaking Bad. You and I don't use the word sin in our everyday language. It's not, you know, it's not a cool, it's kind of a churchy word. I mean, who uses the word sin on a regular basis? But the word breaking bad in that series, it didn't use the word sin, but really that's what it was about. It was about sin, and that's what sin does. Sin is breaking bad, and it's what it does. It breaks up and makes things bad. That's what it does. Another concept is blemish in the Bible. It talks about blemish, like an animal that is unfit to be offered to God as a sacrifice because it has a blemish. Here's the law of being a teenager. The more exciting, the more big the date, the bigger the pimple will get on the day of your date. It just, blemish, crooked. Over 200 times, there's a word in the Bible where it uses crooked. It says that we as human beings are crooked. We are bent. We are twisted. Years and years and years ago, there was a president who left office, and he said, I am not a crook. We're all crooked, the Bible says, in some way or another. Another phrase we find in the Bible is rebellion. 
rebellion, defiance against God, defiance against the moral order. I'm going to rebel. It's like the little four-year-old. You know, with a ride in their tricycle up and down the sidewalk, and they're just going up and down way far, and Dad comes out and says, no, you can only go from this driveway right here to this driveway right here. If you go further on in the end, you're going to get a spanking. And the little kid goes, sticks their little tail out and says, well, Dad, you better spank me right now because I got places to go and people to see. Rebellion. <laughs> Defiance. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's a word for sin in the Bible. Another one is owing a debt. Over a dozen times in the Bible, it talks about you and me owing a debt, a debt we cannot pay, that God paid for us through his son Jesus on the cross, that our forgiveness has a cost attached to it. Another word is, is going astray. It's like the idea of swerving. You're swerving. It's like someone who is drunk and you're walking, you're bumping into people, or you're driving and you're going to hurt somebody. That's what happens when you and I get involved in our sinful behavior. People, we swerve and get out of the lane and other people get hurt. Another one is lawlessness. It's where I rationalize in my mind that certain ethical principles, that certain sort of character traits I'm exempt from, the rules don't apply to me, I can act how I want to, I rationalize. Another word in the Bible is trespass. Trespass is about breaking boundaries. It's when I give myself permission to go somewhere where I have no right to go. No one gave me permission to go, but I go anyway, and I say in my mind, I can do it. It's kind of like the, the minister who's visiting this town. He was going to speak in this town, and he's downtown, big city. He can't find a parking place. He's got to get in. He's driving around and around and around, and he's panicking. There's a no parking zone. He parks in the no parking zone. He said, man, I better leave a note. So he leaves a note, you know, just in case for the officer. Hey, officer, I've been drove around this block 10 times. I'm going to miss this appointment. I, I, gotta, I, I had to park here. Uh, forgive us our trespasses. Police officer comes around, sees the car parked right there. The guy comes up. Yep, he's got a ticket with a note. He reads the note. He said, listen, I've been driving around this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I'll get fired. Lead us not into temptation. <laughs> The final word we find in the Bible for sin is the word impurity. Impurity is one of the most important words in the scripture that talks about sin. James 4 puts it this way. Pure, purify your heart. Paul says to Timothy, do not allow yourselves to be uh, uh, sharing in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is put it this way in your notes number two. Sin is the destruction of purity. Now, I know purity is an old-fashioned word. Some of you think that purity is a prudish word. Some of you think that purity is an oppressive word. And I will agree, the church at times has used that word purity just to put, put stuff on people, especially women. The church has done a horrible, horrible harm, I think, to people, particularly women, and putting that up on them, what it means to be pure. So let's clarify as a whole for all of us what purity really means. In your notes, 
Purity is the way things are supposed to be when they are right. Purity is the way things are supposed to be when they're whole, when they're good, when there's wholeness in some sort of just, just the way they're supposed to be. Now, our government has created an agency called the Food and Drug Administration. And their job is to monitor the purity in the foods that you and I eat to make sure things are the way they are supposed to be. So I did a little research on some of the reports of the FDA and the regulations on the purity of the foods that you and I eat. I'm not going to share everything I learned because some of you would not eat for weeks. But I'm going to give you a couple of ideas of how the FDA has some things like apple butter, for example. If you, if you like, enjoy a- apple butter. If the average, uh, if there are on average four or more rodent hairs and 100 milligrams of apple butter, they'll pull it off the shelf. If there are three or less, it's there. And you enjoy it on your bagel at breakfast and you don't even know. Mushrooms. Mushrooms cannot be sold if they average 20 or more maggots for 15 grams. 19 maggots, your salad is moving. (laughs) Fig paste. If there are more than 13 insect heads and 100 grams of fig paste... No way. No bueno. That's no good. If there are 19, (laughs) eat away. It's all that. And they don't even care about the body body parts like legs and feet and eye. It's only the heads. We don't want to see the egg, the heads in our fig paste. Here's the last one. Hot dogs. No, I'm not even going to tell you that. Because if I told you, (laughs) I'm not even going to tell you. You would skip 4th of July. I would ruin it for you. So, I, so I'm not even going to tell you. In fact, if I took all the impurities out of weenies, there would be nothing left to eat. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> now, here's the point. The language of purity reminds you and me there's a way that things are supposed to be. Sin is the destruction of the way things are supposed to be, the way God designed it, the way God had in mind for your life. And sin destroys that. When you and I sin, we pollute the physical world in which we live. We pollute our moral character. We pollute our very souls itself. Besides you and me living in a physical ecosystem, you and I live in a spiritual and a moral ecosystem. The way you live your life impacts the physical ecosystem. The physical ecosystem impacts your life. The way you live your life impacts the spiritual and moral ecosystem of the world. And the world's spiritual moral ecosystem impacts you. Now, here's the problem with this whole subject and conversation. Some of you are getting braced right now. You're bracing yourself. Because you've heard some of these messages before. And now you're going to hear about the punishment for your sin. 
Lay it on you. And when churches do that, you and I start asking questions like this. Well, okay, okay, how much much sin can I have in my life before I need to get worried about it, Pastor? How much sin so I can avoid all that punishment stuff? Because I really want to avoid that. Oh, I don't want that. I don't want that. How much sin can I have? What are the levels of impurity that I can tolerate in my life? You know, how how much is okay and how much is not okay? Kind of like fig paste, right? How much is okay? It's kind of like answering, asking. How much cancer do I allow to be in my body before I do something about it? Church, when when you get worried about the punishment aspect, it distorts everything, and you're really missing the point of the Bible when it talks about sin. Sin has built into it its own consequence of damage and destruction in you and the people around you. The question is not, what is my punishment going to be? The question is, how can I be set free from the power that sin has over me? That's the question. What sin am I to hate? Hate the sin, love the sinner. And some people justify that phrase of of love the sin and hate the sinner by this passage over here in Romans 12, verse 9. We'll put it on the screen, and it starts like this, just three little sentences in one little verse. First of all, it says love must be sincere. You can spend your whole life just trying. That, that could be your life verse. You're, just spend your whole life just trying to be sincere in love. That would be a worth, life worth living. But then it says, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say hate the sin in other people. It doesn't say that. What's Paul implying? Hey, Rick, I want you to hate the sin in you. Hate the coldness in you. Hate the selfishness in you. Hate the greed in you. Hate that which is in you. In your notes, number four, God wants me to become the expert in hating my own sin. Not somebody else's. So I can be set free from the power that sin has over me. Not the power that sin has over you. So I want us to do this just for a second. As your pastor, as your senior pastor, I would like to talk with you a little bit about sin. And I want to share with you, just with a grieving heart, about some of the things that I've witnessed. I've seen and I've witnessed too many marriages grow cold and distant and pain and death and little children suffer the consequences and it didn't have to be because parents couldn't get it their act together and I say that with love in my heart I've seen too many young adults and honestly older adults too get so caught up in our hypersexualized society make some really bad decisions and justify them Make promises with their body. Their body can't keep and their body won't keep. I've seen families, extended families, grow cold and distant from each other. Going weeks, months, and years, not even talking to each other. Silent and cruelty. 
for reasons so stupid, nobody can even remember what they are. They just know they're supposed to be mad. I've watched us sit back July 4th, two weeks away, two weeks from today, to watch our nation just be divided by people who have hatred for another human being simply because their skin is another color. Because they voted a certain way. False narratives, conspiracies, lies, misuse of power, division. I've seen parents idolize work at the expense of their children. I have witnessed too many people go more, more, more. I got to have more. I got to have more, 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 just more, more, forgetting that there are kids all around you going to bed hungry and you could do something about it, but you're so focused up, we're so focused upon ourselves, we don't even think about that. I just got to have more. No saving, no, no self-discipline, no self-control. I've witnessed too many friendships destroyed by lies. I've witnessed women being demeaned by men, over-sexualized by men, and men denying it. Their own soul rotting because they hide it. I've witnessed women turn on women viciously, rabid, just gossip. Ruining people's reputation. I have witnessed people handle private conflict in a public forum on social media where everybody gets a word in and it appeals to the worst of us and it just becomes this vitriol. I have witnessed pride and ego and selfishness in me. So this weekend, I'm asking all of us online, wherever you are, in the house, sanctuary, true worth, become an expert at hating your own sin. Not somebody else's. <laughs> My own sin. And become an expert at laying it at the foot of the cross and say, help me. Help me, help me take care of this thing that has a power over me that's causing damage to the people around me. If you need an accountability partner, go get it. If you need to go to somebody and say, hey, I wronged you, I hurt you, I was wrong, go do it. Church, I'm just saying, stop playing around with it and ask God for help. Here's the second part of this phrase is love the sinner. That seems like something Jesus would say, right? Jesus loved everybody. Uh, he just loved people. He was called a friend of sinners. They, 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 they thought that was kind of an insult. He thought it was a badge of honor. Yep, that's me. I'm a friend of sinners. I mean, he loves sinners. In fact, it says over here in 1 Timothy, in the first chapter, 1 Timothy, verse 15, it says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst, he said. That sounds like something Jesus would say, love sinners, but he doesn't say it. 
He says, love your neighbor. He says, love your enemy. He says, love those who persecute you. But he never said, love sinners. Why do you think that is? It seems like he would. Because love your neighbor covers everybody. Your neighbor is not just the person who lives next door. Your neighbor is everybody you come in contact with. That includes sinners. He didn't need to say it. It's already there. But I think here's the bigger reason. I think if Jesus would have ever said, hey, sinners, people who follow him would say, hey, listen, over here, we got to, you start looking for sinners. Oh, here they are. I see the sinners. There, I got the sinner. I got all the sinners over here. Now, over here, this other category, this is the people who vote like me, who think like me, who believe like me, who do everything just like me. Over here are the righteous, good people, and over there are the sinful people. Hey, you, come over here. Come over here and watch me. Love those sinners. Get all puffed up. Look at me loving those people. Isn't that interesting how that happens? When you read the Bible, you never see anywhere in the Scripture where Jesus talks about hating sin except when he's dealing with people who get all self-righteous and puffed up and so judgmental so much it roots out them really loving other people because they think they're so better than them. Over here in Luke chapter 18, he has a little story that he tells, and it's probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And he's telling the story of some people. It says in verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness, they looked down on everybody else. They're going, hey, listen, I'm doing this right. I'm doing that right. I'm good. I got to know the Bible. I'm practicing all this. Look at those guys over there. Look at them, those sinful people over there. That's who he's talking to. And church, when you and I get like that, it roots out all love. It's kind of hard to love sincerely when you're judging heartily. And so here, the story has these two different prayers. First of all, the prayers of the self-righteous spiritual expert who thought he was so good about everything, the Pharisee, and he prays like this really loud. He said, God, I thank you. I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Woo! I thank you. I'm not like those sinners. And then the hero of the story This little tax collector, this corrupt tax collector, has a very quiet, simple prayer. Verse 13, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the original prayer that we get, that we learned. We just spoke spoke a while ago, the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's where it started, right there, from a lowly, corrupt, sinful tax collector. So let me see if I can wrap this up and kind of put this in a, in a very simple way here. I don't understand how this happens, but it does. You and I stop doing bad things. I'm going to stop swearing. I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to stop, you know, drinking like a fish. I'm going to stop all this addiction stuff. I, I'm going to stop, uh, well, you name it. I'm going to stop beating the kids. I'm going to stop watching this and watching that. I'm going to start this. I'm going to start, I'm going to start praying. I'm going to start reading the Bible. I'm going to start, I'm going to start giving. I'm going to start, I'm going to start all this stuff. And when I do that, all these virtues, I don't know why this happens to us. A little root of self 
judgment, self-righteous judgmentalism gets in there and it roots out love where I think I'm better than other people and I'm always pointing out their wrongs. Why is that that we do that? That's a part of our sinful nature as well. And it's odd. You're trying to do right and it roots out that which is the most important thing. What is the great commandment? Love your neighbor, period. So here's the challenge. Last thing in your notes, I would say. God wants me to become an expert on just loving other people. Hate my sin and loving other people. It's real easy for me to see your sin. Oh, it's easy to look at them and call it out on them and call it out on them and call Oh, that's, that's so easy to do. We're masters of that. And we overlook what's in us. The call is to hate that which is in me and just love people and let God do the judging. So let's do that, could we? Let's don't miss grace. Let's don't miss loving people. So let's, let's finish like this. How much sin do you think there is in Burleson, Texas? I'll tell you, it's massive. I mean, it's massive. Let's expand that. How much sin do you think there is in Joshua and Godly and Alvarado and Crowley all combined? How much do you think there is? It's on steroids, dude. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's exploding. Okay, let's expand that. How much sin do you think there is in Fort Worth, Dallas, and Austin, Texas? Let's add Washington, D.C. <laughs> Woo! Arrogance. Misuse of power. Promiscuity. Underhanded deals. Destroying people's reputation. It's massive. Let me ask you another question. How much sin do you think there is in this church? I'll tell you, it's quite a bit. And here's how I know. I get a report on my desk every Monday morning with your name on it. Oh, yeah. It's a lie. How much prayer, how much sin is there in my heart? I don't know. God knows. But here's what I do know. What I do know about what's in my heart, it would take Jesus 10 decades to deal with it if all he had to do was deal with my heart, not even touch your heart. Decades. So I'm really not going to be focusing on the sin in you. I'm just going to be asking God to help me deal with the sin in me. Could you put the prayer on the screen again, please? Say it with me wherever you are. You're at home. You're in the hospital. You're at True Worth. Can you put the Lord Jesus Christ on the prayer?
on the screen for me, please? Could you do that? Say it with me again, please, wherever you are. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Say it one more time. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I just want to give you a moment to not leave this place. To take care of business with God if you have any business to do. On this Father's Day weekend, if there's something in you that's disrupting the family, something in you is causing pain in the people you say you love. And maybe you don't know. You just say, God, would you please show me? Maybe that's your prayer. Please, God, show me. Show me an attitude. Show me a word. Show me where I'm selfish. Show me where I'm missing it, God. Show me. Convict me. Set me free from the power of sin in my life is hurting the people around me. Help me just to love sincerely like Jesus did. Thank you, good, good Father, for your kindness, for your grace, and for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Happy Father's Day. Thank you for joining us. If you would like more information on Pathway or to get connected to a ministry, visit our website at pathway.church. We look forward to growing with you as we worship together. God loves you. God is with you.